And when uh, my dad was sick with cancer, <clears throat> we were uh, living in trailers. We were we were building uh, our homes, property that we expected to live in, uh, right next to mom and dad. And um, during that time he was sick, he was living in an RV trailer. And we thought, well, this isn't the greatest place for dad to come home on hospice care when it became time. And so um, we uh, we actually had some friends just down the road from us that offered to have dad come spend his last days in their little guest studio. And uh, I'll never forget when we pulled dad into the guest studio, um, we set up his hospice bed and we came and checked out the scene and we got dad settled in. I looked up on the wall and uh, on the wall in that little studio was a wooden sign uh, that had this passage uh, quoted on it. It said, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And, uh, you know, uh, that that was a really meaningful uh, sign uh, for us. And we thought, man, at the end of my dad's life, um, how cool is it that this sign just happened to be on the wall? And it, it certainly felt true uh, for my dad, that my dad had lived a life following Jesus, serving Jesus. And so, how cool that this sign would be up. Uh, and uh, so that's kind of a story about my dad's last days. Um, but uh, in this passage today, we're going to talk about uh, what Jesus has to say about uh, the last days. And and I think that this story is helpful for us to think about in the context of not only what will the end of the world be like, but also about what type of legacy do you want to leave behind when your days have reached their end. This story, uh, it, it comes as part of Jesus' uh, famous Sermon on Signs. Um, a lot of theologians call it the Olivet Discourse because remember Jesus is giving this sermon to his disciples from atop uh, the Mount of Olives, looking back on Jerusalem. Uh, he's just left Jerusalem for really the final time in the life of his ministry. He'll return. Uh, when he's put on trial, but Jesus is giving this sermon from the top of the Mount of Olives. So it's known as the Olivet Discourse. And I think this is really important to the context. It, this passage today comes after the passage on this sermon that has been about being ready. And uh, you know, as I've said, that uh, I think Jesus' teaching on the end times are are mostly about us uh, knowing how to live in the time in between the times. And so this passage comes after uh, his sermon that really emphasized uh, being ready. And uh, it comes before his the next section, which is going to be about the day of judgment. So Jesus starts this story with these words. He says, again, it will be like. Again is a really important word when you're reading the text for context clues. This one certainly stands out because the word again ties this teaching to the be ready parables that I just mentioned, the ones that we studied just last week. See, Jesus was so good at uh, making connections and making sure that everyone was following him as he was teaching. That's actually a really good teaching skill. Some of you here are teachers and you know that you haven't taught until your students have learned. And uh, you know we, we can learn from Jesus strategies like this because good teaching is repetitive. And Jesus was not afraid to teach until his students uh, had learned. So he goes on to say, again, it will be like. So the question that begs, well, what is the it? What is it? The it he's talking about in, in the last story was the kingdom of heaven. Remember the story about the wise and the foolish women, some who were ready 
for the return of the bridegroom and some who are not. In that story, he said the kingdom of heaven will be like. And so now we know that the it is referencing back to that story. The it in this story, again, it will be like is the kingdom of heaven. This parable is about what the kingdom of heaven will be like. It's about how we should live with readiness as we await judgment day. This parable rests between be ready and it's too late. So let's dig in. There's three aspects uh, that I want to address this morning. Uh, Three aspects to this story. The first relates to the entrusting master. The second relates to the stewardship of the servants in the story. And the third and final aspect of the story is the master's reward. So let's continue on with verse 14 and 15 as we take a look at what the master entrusts. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another, two bags, and to another, one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. First of all, we see that uh, the master doesn't just give, he entrusts. And of course, the master here is a picture of our heavenly father. And the servants in this story, I think, are, are meant to convey the idea of disciples or humans on earth who live underneath the master. And this master doesn't just give, he entrusts. He entrusted his wealth to them, is what it says in verse 14. And uh, this is how God is. He gives plenty, certainly, but he also entrusts. He entrusts us with different possessions, with different abilities. And I was just thinking, and I think it'd be a good place to start for us today. Like, what has God entrusted you with? And I believe that the Holy Spirit might even put things on your heart as we go through this passage and maybe reveal specific things to your heart that he's entrusted you with. Has he given you money? Has he given you intellect? Has he given you health? Maybe you have time and he's entrusted you with its use. Now, in this story, you'll notice that, uh, you know, historically, um, this story is known as the parable of the talents. And uh, sometimes that gets us a little bit off base. Talent was uh, the word used in the Greek context for uh, an an amount of money, currency, a large amount of money. Uh, In the NIV translation that I read from, uh, it actually says bags of gold. Uh, I I don't know which one you want to use, but don't get confused with the idea that this is only about the talents that you possess. See, in the English language, we have the, the, the word talent. And it means like what you're good at, what you're skilled in. And I think certainly this passage applies to what you're good at, what you're skilled in, but it could be broader reaching than that as well. So however that helps you, the thing that you got to know in this story is, is a talent is a huge sum of money. These servants were left behind with a huge sum of money. Uh, the experts think that this was probably about 10,000 denarii. And we learned in the Vineyard Worker parable that 10,000, or I'm sorry, one denarii is equal to one day's wage for a laborer. So the amount of currency at hand in this story is anywhere from 50,000 days wages to the servant who got five bags of gold, down to 20 or even 10,000 to the the servant that got the least. So the least in this story got 10,000 days wages for a laborer's worth. Now I did the math on this (laughs) to put it into our context. And I'm not exactly a mathematician, but 
I thought it might be helpful for us. See, if you do the math on this, uh, a day's wage for a laborer 10,000 times is worth about $800,000. The second servant would have gotten even what would be worth about $1.6 million. And then the servant who got the most was probably had something around $4 million. Now, what are those? Those numbers really don't mean much. But what they do mean is these are huge amounts of money. Even the servant who only got one bag of gold had a huge amount entrusted to him. And look, I think this is so true for us. And sometimes we can lose sight of the fact that we've been entrusted with so much. So many of us think that we don't have enough, but we've been given a really large amount. And we've not just been given it as a gift. We've been entrusted with what we have. So some have asked uh, historically, what do, the, what do the bags of gold represent? Well, literally, yes, there's an economic currency at play here. But representatively, the, the bags of gold in this story represent anything that God has entrusted to you and to me. The second thing that we've got to see about what the master has entrusted us with is that he entrusts according to our ability. It says in verse 15, to one he gave five, to another two, and to another one. This might be hard for us to hear, but evidently we're not all created exactly the same in the kingdom of God. Of course, we're equal in value. We're all image bearers and we're equal in value to the Lord. We're equal in our eternal significance to God. We're equal in our call to salvation. We all have the same opportunity to respond to salvation, but we're not all equal in our call to service. Keep in mind, our call to service, the amount that we're entrusted with, is allotted by a wise Lord who knows everyone's ability. Now, this can seem unfair from one perspective, but trust me, this is good news. Have you ever been given more than you could handle? How does it feel to get more than you can handle? Have you ever broken from the weight of too much responsibility. See, the Lord knows exactly what you can handle. And so he allots each according to their ability. In the second aspect of the story, we're gonna take a look at the, the, the way that the servants steward what they've been entrusted with. So let's go verse uh, 16. It says, the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. The first thing we see in the response of these servants is that good stewardship is urgent and it's active. Take a look at verse 16. It says that the man who'd received five bags went at once and he put his money to work and gained five bags more. These words went at once, work, and gained. These words demonstrate action, not passivity. Look, readiness, living a ready life for the return of the master is an active endeavor. And part of being ready is, is stewarding what's been entrusted to you. I think this is how we keep watch. You hear that phrase a lot. Keep watch for the end of the world. I think we keep watch for Christ's return by living urgently and actively with what we've been entrusted. Look, it's not religious inwardness 
but an active engagement that mobilizes the believer in the invitation to risky initiatives. One thing I think you got to point out as you look at this story is that there, this brings us to a bit of a tension point, a tension between the grace received and the works performed. And notice what has been entrusted is 100% on behalf of the master. This is the grace that buys our salvation. Grace that leads to salvation is unmerited. This grace, though, which is freely received, it enables the works that follow. Grace enables works. Works don't enable or earn grace. We've got to get that equation correct. Receiving precedes doing in the Christian life. Only the freely received entrustment enables the outgoing works. See, grace presumes, grace expects that responsibility will follow. And where it does not, we learn from this story that there will be judgment. Grace is free, but it must be received, just like a nice pass to a wide open wide receiver. A great pass without reception does no good. Received grace should lead to action. First Peter 4.10 says it this way, if you're confused at this point. Again, the biblical principle of using scripture to interpret scripture. When we get to these tension points and we're like, wait a minute, no, I thought you said we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Yes, I have said that. So let's take a look. What does 1 Peter 4 teach us about how to walk this tension out? It says in verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Verse 11 goes on. If anyone speaks like me, (laughs) they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Not all of you speak though. And so he goes on, if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides. You get the idea that the grace that we freely received prompts us into action and we steward the grace that we've received through conscientious action, each according to his gifts. The second thing we see in these uh, few little verses about the stewardship of the servants is that bad stewardship avoids risk. Look, verse 18, but the man who had received one bag only, he went off and he dug a hole in the ground and he hid his master's money. We've learned this before about Jesus in the gospel of Matthew, but it would seem that Jesus is against withdrawing. He's against especially a motivation of fear that would cause us to withdraw and to play it safe. Some of, us, some of us have used risk as uh, an excuse for not mixing in the world. <clears throat> Maybe we've held back talents, resources. Maybe we've held back the gospel message. These things, when stewarded rightly, mean mission. We don't withdraw from the world. We step into the world. It can feel risky. Some of you are here in this church planting context. I'm telling you, it's been risky to be a part of this. Some of you have taken your children out of you know, big established churches. Some of you are stepping into roles in this community that you never thought that you would play in the church. It takes risks to steward the resources that we've been given. Bad stewardship avoids risk. But we learn from this story, evidently good stewardship takes appropriate risks for the kingdom. 
Third and finally, we get to the master's return and the rewards that follow. It says in verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. Verse 19, first few words, after a long time. So let's, let's take a look at this because in, in chapter 24, it seemed like Jesus was very urgent with his return. It sounded like in chapter 24 of his sermon on signs, his return would be immediate. And when we see Jesus return as immediate or urgent, it leads to urgent living. Here in chapter 25, however, we see his return pictured as delayed or after a long time. The benefit of seeing his return as delayed is steadfast living. I think that Jesus intends this response. We should have a tension between living urgent lives and living steadfast lives. You've got to live as if every day matters because it does matter. You've also got to live as if today might not be the last day and you've got to hold on. Remember, we said just a couple of weeks back that this, this sermon on signs should help create us into endurance runners, holding steadfast to the things that he's called us to. We've got to be urgent in one hand and steadfast in the other. The life of faith is not just about receiving gifts, you guys. It's about giving account. After a long time, the master will return and it will be a day of giving account. We find ourselves in this situation living between grace given and the judgment to come. Verse 20, moving on, it says that the man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. He said, master, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. That word see just jumps off the pages to me. There's a joy in this servant's work. It's almost like he's like, mommy, 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 look what I did. Maybe some of you can relate. There is joy in the work that's been performed with what's been entrusted. See, producing fruit with kingdom investments is rewarding. Some of you are finding that out as you participate and you give your lives to God's mission. It's rewarding to see the kingdom return. The second thing this guy says is, I have gained. Again, we see this tension between grace or gift and working slash effort. Look, in any event, the takeaway with this tension is that God gives grace freely, but we work it out into the world. We work out our salvation is what Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 12. There's a tension between grace and work. And so uh, we see in this story that the master's returning and he wants to know what we've done with what we've been entrusted. So let's take a look at the reward that comes to the servants in this story. Verse 21, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. So I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Three different types of rewards we see in this parable. The first reward is words. What's the first thing the master does? Well done, good and faithful servants. Are, are, are these not the words that we want to hear when our life comes to an end? Well done, good and faithful servant. Imagine the Lord of the universe saying this about your life's work. Is this not the aim of our lives? to hear these words. I think it's the ultimate accomplishment of storing up our treasures in heaven 
Notice what's rewarded here. He uses words to reward, but it's not good and flashy servant. Those aren't the words that he chooses. It's not even good and fruitful servant. It's good and faithful servant. And in a world that craves the big things, and even in the church, we often crave the big things. But God looks for faithfulness in the little things. He expects just as much in ratio from the servant who got the least as he does from the ones who got the most. It's like the widow's might that we read about in, in the parable in Luke. God values the proportion of the investment, not just the size of the investment. Look, it's the heart behind the investment, more than the value of the investment that seems to be worthy in God's kingdom. So notice how the master rewards. First, he used words. And then the second thing we see is that more responsibility is given. He says, since you've been faithful with a few things, I will put you in charge of many things. Heavenly rewards are not beds of rest, evidently. Rather, they're posts of duty. The reward of a duty done is actually more duty to be done. This is incredible. I don't know if some of you can relate to this. I know as a leader and as a motivated person, man, that the best thing that you can give me is more responsibility. I love to be rewarded that way. And some of us say, oh no, don't, me, don't give me any more. But I notice when I put someone in charge of something, after they've done something well, their eyes light up. I very rarely get no's when I tell someone, hey, you did a great job with this. Would you lead this thing instead? Heavenly rewards are for duty done is another duty to be done. The third thing we see about how these servants are rewarded is with shared joy. He says, come and share your master's happiness. See, God has chosen to partner with me and with you. And that means he's sharing all the dividends, even his joy. It can sometimes confuse me that God has chosen to partner with humans. But I believe he's partnered with us in part to share his joy with us. Let's keep moving. It says in verse 24, then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. So this is the bad steward. This is how we don't want to be. And the first thing we realize about how this man was motivated is by false ideas and false motivations. He says, I knew that you are a hard man, so I was afraid. He says, master, um, but he doesn't really know him as master. It's one thing to say, Lord, Lord, and it's another thing to actually make him Lord. I think we've learned that already, Matthew chapter seven. His ideas about God are that God is harsh and that he's overly sovereign, like overly in control to the extent that he doesn't even need the servant. This is his servant's idea of God. He's distant. He harvests where he doesn't sow and he gathers where he hasn't even planted. And notice how the servant uses like this sophisticated theological argument for his puzzling inactivity. And do we not do this at times? Like even with missions, for example, when we refuse to see the role that we play, you know, we say things like, ah, it's in God's hands. We'll let God do what God's going to do. 
Look, when our theology leads us to passivity instead of activity, we need to adjust our theology. Let me say it again. When our theology leads us to passivity instead of activity, we need to adjust our theology. Remember, the, what view of God do you hold? Do you view God as a harsh man? Do you view him as overly sovereign, doesn't even need you or want to partner with you? The God you see is the Christian you will be. What's your view of God? Yes, our master is sovereign, but he's in, chosen to entrust with us his kingdom wealth. He's chosen to partner with humans to bring about his kingdom and to share his joy. The second thing we learn from the, the bad steward is that he had false motivations. He didn't just have false ideas, but his false ideas led him to false motivations. He said, I was afraid. This man was motivated by fear. Check out what 1 John 4 has to say about fear. This is 1 John 4, 17. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Look, fear can lead us to respond in ways that, that will seem appropriate, but are in fact foolish. I believe that this is like a preservation rather than a multiplication mindset and is driven by fear. And, and, and if we're honest, it, it can at times be the conservative error. And I know what you're saying. I thought, you know, being conservative theologically was a good thing, right? I mean, we are, after all, conserving the truth of the doctrines handed down to us. We're not trying to progress the doctrines of Scripture. But if we're conserving an inactive gospel, we're conserving an inaccurate gospel. Look, we've been saved from our sin, yes, but we've been saved to, we've been saved for mission, for kingdom investment. Verse 26, it says that his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. You wicked, lazy servant. Man, these are harsh words. All the man did was take care of what he'd been given and present it when he returned. These words feel so harsh, but evidently failure to invest God's resources isn't just like keeping the status quo. It's evil. It's lazy. And I think we have a Christian culture where it's like the super Christians do the risky stuff. The super Christians are the one that multiplies. And the status quo is just to kind of keep things as they are and return what you've been given. Evidently, investing, taking risk, isn't optional. Evidently, investing in the kingdom is the mark of actually being a disciple. It's not the status quo. Comfort and complacency can lead us to laziness. The next thing the master says is like, so you knew, did you? See, the master seems to question the depth of the servant's knowledge of him. Oh, you know me, do you? Exposing these false ideas about himself. Well, if you knew me to be so harsh, then 
that you were afraid to take, take any risk at all, then, then why didn't you do the wise thing, which would have at least been to put the money in a bank where I would have gained interest? Now think about this for a second. I mean, how foolish is it to bury money in a hole? Now I am, you know, disclaimer here, caveat, I'm a little bit into like mafia genre movies. Uh, the, um, you know, the movies about the cartel, those kind of series sometimes draw my attention, my attention. And I noticed that it's these guys in those movies that are the ones just digging holes and burying their money in the ground. How foolish an idea to dig a hole and bury money in the ground. See, uh, fear drives us not to wise living, but to foolish living. So finally, it's, it's come time for judgment. And this is where we see the story's lesson of warning. As you read this story, as you read these verses, be warned. Verse 28, so take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We talked about rewards already, but not all rewards are positive. There's consequences that come with good behavior and there's consequences that come with foolish behavior. But the ultimate reward that we're promised in scripture is found in eternity. And Jesus promises two options, two consequences for the life that we've lived. We have the choice of eternity with him or eternity without him, your choice. So look, this, this passage is clear. God has entrusted us with all sorts of resources. Even the one of us who feels like they've been allotted the least has been entrusted with a huge amount. So what's the application? Today, as we close, I have, I have three questions for you to reflect on. And I, I believe that the application this morning is specific for each individual. I don't want to put too many thoughts into your head, but I do want to encourage your heart into a posture of openness to receive what the Holy Spirit might be identifying. So three questions to end uh, this message this morning. What have you been entrusted with? Have you been given health, money, talent, time, family? All of us have been given the gospel, good news. What have you been entrusted with? What comes to mind right now as I'm highlighting what you've been entrusted with? And how are you investing what you've been entrusted with? Are you plowing or are you preserving? And then finally, the third question, what are you investing the master's possessions in? Notice in this story, the good servant invested the master's possessions in the master's kingdom, not in his own kingdom, but into the master's kingdom. Are you investing in your kingdom or are you investing in his kingdom? What have you been entrusted with? Wherever you're at right now, if, if something came to your mind, I encourage you just to write it down, maybe in a journal or just on that piece of paper that you've got with you. 
What if this morning as a response, we, we came to the altar, to the table, to the broken body and poured out blood of Jesus and offered to go again by investing what's been entrusted to us? I mean, what if we brought our fear and our false ideas about God and we just laid them down at the altar this morning and just let them go? Look, we're, we're believing for an enormous kingdom harvest. We're contending for a flood of the spirit in our community. We're contending for a super bloom event, a super bloom of faith in our community. Will you invest towards these ends? Or will you pull back in an attempt to preserve, hiding in fear, and missing the party.